0: No, no, notorious.
1: Slavo, fine sir how you doing Paz I'm doing great today it is uh it is just a uh, well I was gonna say it's a beautiful day, but it's actually kind of cloudy outside so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a emotionally beautiful day <laughs> mentally, spiritually. We are talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> born Joan Ruth Bader. March fifteenth, nineteen thirty-three, in Brooklyn. Do you have a, a quote to get
1: us going? I absolutely do. Fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Wow,
0: that's like such an epitome of her. Yeah,
1: it's very descriptive of kind of how she went about her life. So I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty appropriate quote for yeah, going through definitely. Ruth Bader Ginsburg today.
0: Yeah, I want to start. In the thick of it. I want to start at Harvard. Yeah, the thick of it. At Harvard Law.
1: Harvard Law School.
0: Ever heard of it? Ooh, the top law school in the country, potentially. (laughs) So when she went there, there were just nine females and 552 men. (laughs) This was in, yeah, I believe the 50s. Her husband at the time is one year above her, already going to Harvard Law. Flash forward to 2017 there was a study looking at the percentage of male versus female in all law schools and in mm-hmm. 2017 all law schools in the United States 51% female, 49% male. So and that's you know 70 years later.
1: I did the math. It's a uh, 1.6% female at the time wow. that she was at Harvard Law School. Yeah. Have you have you seen the quote of the dean of the Harvard Law School?
0: Yeah, let's talk about it. That's a It's a very famous quote and it really kind of gives you a feel for the time.
1: So basically he invited, so there were nine females mm-hmm. in the Harvard Law program and he invited them all to his house for dinner. And then a, a quote from the dinner is, why are you at Harvard Law School taking the place of a man?
0: Yep. And it very much gives you a feel for the time. I have Ruth's Ginsburg response to that. And at the time she was just she's kinda of towing the lines and she said, My husband is a second year law student and it's important for women to understand her husband's work. And she said that's not how she felt at the time, but she kinda of felt pressured to give him a response that she thought he wanted to hear.
1: Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. It really uh shows just how much inequality there was. Yeah at the time in general and then also at this at Harvard Law School at mm-hmm. like this really high institutional knowledge place that there was there was so much inequality when it came to gender roles and and things of that nature at the time and that was something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg made it her life's work in a lot of ways to break down. Yeah, she
0: did. And another
1: thing I heard
0: her talk about when the dean asked that question of why you're taking a, a man's spot and she said it was because he had to then go to his higher-ups and give them an explanation explaining why it was the right decision that they recently allowed women to participate in, in the law school. And then that – it just it very much gives you a feel for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and to give you an even more feel for the time <laughs> – Just keep it coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I went to a primary source, my grandma, Grandma Paz. <laughs> And, is, uh, it,
1: is it Grandma Paz or Nana Paz? Or?
0: <laughs> um, it's Grandma. <laughs> okay. So she's, I think, three years younger than Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I was talking to her like how it was different when she was a girl growing up versus now. And so one of the big ways, she said, is in like public schools, there are no sports for them to play. Like my grandma loved gym class and really wanted to play sports, but that wasn't an option at that time, and she did cheerleading, as did Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was – In high school, she was like a twirler. So so that's one thing my grandma Mm -hmm. notices that's very different. And then the other thing was my grandma said they didn't have student loans, so they gave the money. They mortgaged their house, her parents, her mother, and her stepdad, so that her stepbrother could go to school. While she was very much like, okay, you need to start taking secretarial classes in high school, and you need to get a job right away. And I asked my grandma why she thought that was the case, and she thought, well, one, I mean, it, it was the stepfather's, like, first son. And mm-hmm. she does, and she said, you know, it's probably because was a boy and expected to provide. And so, you know, again, just kind of gives you a feel for the time um, from this primary source, Grandma Paz.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Grandma Paz, for that information. It Actually, that relates to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's experience in that her mother, Celia Bader, was super intelligent when when she was younger she actually graduated high school at 15 but then couldn't go to college because her family couldn't send her because they were sending her brother to college instead and so the family sent her brother to college and then she didn't end up going to school and that was part of the reason that she was so involved in um, Ruth's education as as a child. Was because she didn't have that experience to go to university, because her family sent her brother instead. So very similar to what what yeah, you were talking about.
0: Very similar, and because of that, Ruth's mom wanted Ruth to take her schooling very serious. And I I have a quote here where she Somebody said, clothes. "We're just
1: firing off quotes <laughs> right now."
0: I know, I know, but it's good to get uh, the voice of this this legend. But she said, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said of her mom and. If I didn't have a perfect report card, she showed her disappointment. Nice. Yeah, so very much uh, high standard. High standards. So here Ruth is at Harvard Law. Obviously, we just discussed, you know, she's kind of breaking the barrier as, you know, in this early wave of female law students. In addition to that, she has a kid. (laughs) They have a daughter. So obviously that makes it all the more challenging. On top of that, her husband, Marty... He gets testicular cancer. Tough. Yeah, very serious. He has surgery. He's on weeks of chemotherapy. He can't digest anything until twelve, so they would wait till twelve to have their dinner, and then she would ha- would you know show the notes she had for him because she would take notes because he couldn't go to class, mm-hmm. um, and she did say the classmates really rallied around them and. A lot of their classmates helped Marty and would tutor him. And ironically, despite when he had testicular cancer, he wasn't able to go to class. He was able to make the final two weeks. That was when he got his best marks, probably because of all the support from Ruth and from these classmates. So
1: that's good. That's I'm, yeah, definitely a tough situation for them, especially having a small child. Both of them in law school <laughs> it sounds very uh, very difficult in a very intense period of their lives
0: yeah and she
1: you know incredible work ethic taking care
0: of him working late into the night and then he graduates and during this time as we mentioned she was the first woman i believe on the harvard law review um, which is that's like your top students get put on the law review and it's kind of a theme as we go along where basically anything she does, it's like, you're the first woman. You're like the first Jewish woman. Right? She yeah. just kind of uh, came yeah. in the it, way. Yeah, <laughs> it
1: was countless barriers. And it's it's not, it, it's not kind of twofold with her because she was not only personally breaking down barriers, but then in what she was doing, she was actively breaking down barriers that other people were um, were setting up.
0: Yeah, in in terms of legal action, she would later on break down these barriers. Yeah, exactly. And she's just herself paving the way as um, an exemplar. So then Marty graduates, and she's a year younger. They move to New York so he can start his career as a tax lawyer, and so she goes to Columbia Law.
1: She transfers over to Columbia.
0: Yep, yep. I think here she might finish Columbia Law At the top of her class, and again, this is just kind of a theme.
1: She was the yeah, she was the top female in her class.
0: Okay, it's it's a theme from Cornell where they met her and Marty to Harvard to Columbia, always at the top. If she's you know the top overall, top female, just absolutely excelled academically.
1: And it's (laughs) when when you're looking at all the schools that Rbg was associated with, it's like a who's who columbia harvard cornell for undergrad she did lots of work she was a fellow at stanford she's associated with a lot of the top institutions in the country in a time that none of them are particularly diverse but like she she's breaking down the walls to get to get everywhere
0: yeah yeah impressive but despite this when she goes to look for work she has trouble finding work after she graduated. Columbia, having been on Harvard, Columbia Law, yada, yada, yada. She's looking for a job. She's able to find two interviews, but doesn't make it. And, and she believes working against her is, of course, she's a female. And if they're just allowing females into law school, they don't have a lot of practicing lawyers. So this is new. She's also a mother. This really scares off a lot of people. To the point, I think her Columbia professor Went to someone he knows and says, like, I, I put all my backing, all my recommendation behind Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If she doesn't work in, in like, if you don't accept her, I'm never going to push another candidate or another Columbia law student your way because I'm that confident in her abilities. And I believe that l- lands her a job.
1: Yeah. So she ended up as a, as a clerk. That was Edmund Palmieri, who is a district court judge under the um, Southern District for New York. So that was her professor went to Edwin Palmieri and basically made that threat said yeah if you don't if you don't take her as a clerk I'm not going to be sending students your way in the future yeah so that's where she got that job for for the first two years
0: yeah and I I heard that Edward even before her had another clerk that was female so you know, I think that helped the transition a little bit. But obviously, if this happened nowadays and you have this resume, I don't think there's any issues getting a job. I think people are like coming to you.
1: Yeah, I think she has an incredible, incredible resume. I think when it comes to, and this is actually the subject of our Wikipedia deep dive. I don't know if now is the right time to go into yes, it. Yes,
0: let's go. Let's let's do a little so bit deep dive.
1: This is um, our deep dive is today is going to be about. <laughs> this, it's an intense subject, oh, diversity wow. in clerks for the Supreme Court. So maybe some background on what the clerks are, but basically, so when you graduate from law school, a lot of lawyers can go into, they get their JD and then they can go into like criminal law or they can go into civil law or they can go work in corporate law. Or if they want to go on the judge path, it's very typical for them to become a clerk for a judge which is basically you're doing research for the judge and you're helping them out in assorted ways, and it's a very prestigious position. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she got her start working as a clerk in the district court of New York, and then she went about her career and then eventually became a district court judge, which is then the stepping stone to become the Supreme Court justice, which is what she became. So what caused me to look into this diversity situation is because Recently, it's come up that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did maybe did not have the most diverse group of clerks under her when she was a district court judge and a Supreme Court justice. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, I saw this. I think originally Washington Post like kind of brought this to light and had an article. At least that's that's what I read. But continue. Give us give us the deep dive.
1: Yep. So in the case of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and and she she is included in this for better or for worse, and that when she was a district court judge for maybe 12 years, she only had one African-American clerk. And then, or actually, no, she didn't have any when she was a district court judge. And then in her time in the Supreme Court from 1993 to 2020, she only had one African-American clerk. So which was something that was mentioned after her death where it was uh, the lack of diversity. She only actually had 12% minority in her for her clerks which is not a very high number i think the highest is sonia sotomayor i want to say she has about a third approximately a third of her clerks in her tenure she's a newer justice so um, about a third of hers have been minorities and but the diversity issue it's was brought up in the case of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but it's not a Ruth Bader Ginsburg specific issue. It's a very pervasive issue when it comes to the Supreme Court of the United States. So I've, I have some statistics that I deep dove as I was looking into this, because you think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's a pillar for uh, quality in her time. So when you see that she maybe doesn't have the, the highest amount of minority representation, makes you wonder why. Why is why is it that we don't have as many minorities working as clerks for the these higher courts?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I would like to say, I feel like a lot of these stats in the, in the diversity, I think they're really good for the macroscopic trends and be like, okay, society, you know, kind of has this way and there's, there's something wrong where we're favoring this group. I think it's tougher to put the blame on an individual when, like, if you look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you'd have to go back, like, okay, who actually hired these positions? What were the candidates? What were the qualifications? But I do think these numbers give a really great view into the macroscopic trends of society and an institution so that you can say, okay, there's like a problem here. We got to figure out why.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we'll start out with the Supreme Court in general. So the Supreme Court of the United States was established in 1789. And since then, there have been 114 justices. Do you know how many of those have been of color?
0: Supreme Court justices? Yes. My guess would be
1: three. Three. That okay. is correct. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, Clarence Thomas, and Sonia Sotomayor. Do you know how many justices have been women?
0: My guess would be three or four.
1: <laughs> correct. <laughs> so it almost like you've done research on <laughs> this topic. I mean, these are pretty famous <laughs> people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's been four. Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Sonia Sotomayor, Again, and Elena Kagan. So, as we mentioned about the the diversity, since 2005, only 12% of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's clerks have been of color, one of which was African American. 50% have been women. So, since 2005, 85% of clerks have been white. And uh, only 20 of the 487 were African American, nine were Hispanic. And I think there were more Asian American. And then another interesting statistic. Wait, go ahead.
0: Could you read those again?
1: So since 2005, there's been 487 clerks. Only 20 are African American and nine are Hispanic.
0: Okay. And so what percentage of the U.S. population is African American? I thought it was around in the 20% range because if that's the case, it is pretty representative of the American population. 20%?
1: 20% 20 of 487 would be like 90.
0: Oh, you said 20. I thought, I was thinking percentages. Oh, no, 20. No, 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 20%. Okay. Uh, No, 20 out of uh, Mm -hmm.
1: 487. So 20 divided by 487 is 4%. Okay. Yeah, that's so definitely 4% below. So four percent African American, yeah. and then nine Hispanic, which is mm-hmm. um, divide that by two, two percent Hispanic, which is not representative at all of the um, American population. Yeah, the American yeah. po- population, and so Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she had fifty percent men and women, but the uh, male to female clerks in general. Men outweigh the women two to one, or outnumber the women two to one, for all for uh, all quirks. justices since yeah. two thousand five. Again, this is despite the fact that as of twenty seventeen, more than half of law students are women, mm-hmm. and so it's not just Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's kind of it's it's more of a, which is, I mean, it gets brought up because because she recently passed, and and so it's. It's always good to be talking about these things. Mm-hmm. So, I was kind of looking into it, dig- diving deeper. Why is it the case? Why is there so such a disparity when it comes to when it comes to diversity in these really important positions? And why is it important? Well, it's important because if you get a clerkship one, at a district court, or if you get a clerkship at, at the Supreme Court, that sets you up to be a district judge, which then su- sets you up to be a Supreme Court justice. So when you have so few minorities as Supreme Court justices, you then can filter it down and say, oh, well, there we haven't had as much diversity in the clerkships. There isn't as much diversity in the district court judges. And it's all just creating this system, which is kind of turning everything into where white males are the ones who are predominantly getting nominated for these positions. And so... Did you know that 50% <laughs> statistics are coming 50% of Supreme Court law clerks come from either Harvard or Yale law school 50%
0: 50% of what
1: of all clerks that get a job at for working as a clerk for Supreme Court justice come from Harvard or Yale law school
0: That's that's crazy
1: That's actually up from 1998 was 40 percent and it's become even more exclusive to be to be in to be getting this job interesting
0: yeah that's wild i mean then there's (laughs) interesting you know because you kind of wonder if all these people are going to the same institution kind of being taught similarly Mm -hmm. and then they're all going to these higher positions you know you kind of wonder just are we sending so many like-minded people into these uh, rather powerful positions, and maybe we don't have, like, you know, a diversity of opinions.
1: Diversity of background, diversity of perspective. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting to think about because if you think about the idea that... And there are articles that our listeners can go out and read about this and kind of bring... I mean, this is such a difficult subject to talk about. So it's... Paz and Slavo, we might not be the... (laughs) We might not be the, the absolute truth or absolute knowledge. We're just trying to provide information for for everyone to go out and, and read about it themselves. But you think of 50% of clerks are coming from Harvard or Yale. And then it makes you think, okay, so does that mean if you that, that step one is you have to get into Harvard? And then maybe step two is there's certain professors that, that you need to have a really good relationship with. And then, then you get a clerkship at a district court or something like that. And then there's, it's a very narrow path to be able to get to these positions. And then it becomes even more narrow the further up you go. And then it just shows, just go, goes to show that the whole system is very uh, elite. <laughs> it's very elite. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. No, this is, it's very interesting. Uh, yeah, definitely don't have the answers. But it's, it's certainly interesting to hear about. <laughs> and it, it makes sense then you know that they initially kind of opened up the gates to women at Harvard and Yale and all these schools and then it takes a little time but then eventually Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all those women are starting to open up these positions at these clerkships and so on and so forth to the Supreme Court but it, you know it certainly needed to start kind of at the base where you know they they weren't able to go to these top law schools
1: yeah, exactly, and so and Harvard and Yale are definitely have become much more diverse in far as far as their student body for their law schools. So then the, the hope is is then that the clerks the the clerks at the lower courts will then become much more diverse, and then the judges at the lower courts will become more diverse, and then over time it'll all filter upwards down that tiny funnel that goes up to the top where you have nine justices, and so maybe that'll that'll change some statistics down the line. Yeah, yeah. Very very interesting.
0: Yeah, definitely don't have the answers, but you know, we mean well.
1: <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So there's the 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 deep dive there. I just thought it was so interesting when when mm-hmm. I when I was reading about it because and it was the fact that um these things were being talked about when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed. So it was just kind of because yeah, you you want to say why is this the case?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And no, and certainly when when I see those stats, I don't place too much blame individually. Personally, I don't on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think mm-hmm. it's kind of the system and the society and, you know, who knows what choices she had when she's hiring people, you know, like maybe if they only put people in front of her who went to Harvard or law, exactly. I mean Harvard or Yale and then yeah. that's already funneled and then they had to have this other clerkship and then she's looking at five candidates and then none of them, you know, are diverse and one of them really sticks out you know yeah
1: because if there's one thing we know about Ruth Bader Ginsburg she likes equality <laughs> and she has been a, she has been a fighter for equality yeah um for for all for all of her life and we will go into a lot of examples of yeah. where she um specifically in the case of gender equality where she was an absolute pioneer and yeah. an yeah. advocate yeah she was
0: very adamant about gender equality and it wasn't from the beginning as she she says herself it was kind of late blooming this where that really became her goal and, and we'll we'll get to that but just worth mentioning so after she has this job um, being a clerk she then she works for Rutgers as a professor and later Columbia um, and she worked at both of them for a pretty long time I think Rutgers nine Columbia for eight and during those times she's also a, a practice practicing lawyer yeah let's get into where she starts to get into gender discrimination and it starts with the Moritz v. Commission case and <laughs>
1: a lot of law cases coming through more. so there's a there's there's a lot of names that are tough to pronounce so mm-hmm. we'll see mm-hmm. how we do on the pronunciations yeah, yeah. again
0: we mean well <laughs> so she yeah she credits this case with up upstarting her role in gender discrimination and it actually came across her husband, Marty, his desk. It was a tax thing. And Marty shows it to Ruth and she's like, get out of here. I don't do tax stuff. you know." <laughs> and Marty's like, no, you're going to want to check this out. And so how this case works is there is this man and he's caring for his elderly mother. And so he, when he submits his taxes, he takes a deduction because there's one for Helping out, you know, your elder mother, but as it turns out, the IRS, which the IRS never on the right side. (laughs) (laughs) The IRS, IRS. easy villain, (laughs) (laughs) easy villain, (laughs) definitely. Yeah, whatever side you're on, it's not the IRS. (laughs) Um, and so he, I believe, he gets audited, and they're like, "Okay, you can't take this deduction because it's only for women." or formerly married men so if you were married and then for whatever and then you're caring for your mother then it's it's allowed you know it's it's obviously just a, a weird role and then there's this gender thing where this is a male who can't deduct his taxes for caring for his mother so that kind of jump starts her career in this gender discrimination and as you'll you know early on she's focusing on gender disc- discrimination for both genders um, Yeah this makes a lot of sense. For one, she was like very adamant in the beginning about equality. Like in the law, it should be person in person. Your gender shouldn't matter. And it also, it helps because she, in a lot of cases is arguing in front of male judges and, um, you know, they might more easily be able to empathize with a male plaintiff who's caring for, you know, his mother in this case. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of, Jump starts her career, and then she goes on to argue six cases in front of the Supreme Court that are around gender equality. And at, you know she is specifically looking for cases that can go to the, the Supreme Court about gender equality because she wants to build the blocks for male and females being treated equally under the law.
1: Yeah, and this was it really shows how brilliant she is and that she had this strategy where she was going to go step by step where she has this long-term goal of gender equality and, she, and she's going to pick cases that she could take to the highest courts possible so that she could then kind of make sure that she's, she's forming the path to equality by fighting each case, taking one, um, one discrepancy here, one issue here, and kind of breaking down areas where discrimination is happening step by step and then getting yourself to the to the highest courts because you argue your case to the Supreme Court and they make it and they make a choice then you can you can really cement that uh, that pr- progress that you're making
0: yeah exactly the building blocks exactly what you're saying so one of the cases was duran versus missouri and what this was around was Gender-based exemption from a jury. So women could be on the jury, but it wasn't just assumed. They would have to go out of their way, put their names in the clerk's office, then be called, and they could be like, okay, I don't want to do it. You know, they kind of have the option.
1: Yeah, it was optional.
0: Yeah, while males, you know, you had to do jury duty. Civic duty. Yep. And this was a great case for what she was trying to accomplish because a lot of these laws were kind of meant to protect women and a lot of people kind of viewed it as caring for women or they get the best of both worlds where it's like oh if you want to be on the jury you can but you know we don't want to burden you with that and so she has to convince people that these laws sometimes portrayed that they're trying to help women are actually hurting women is what she's arguing and so That was the first case where it's like, again, if you're called to jury duty, you should be treated as a person. It shouldn't matter what gender you are, and you have to do your civic duty. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that reminds me that I think is really admirable about her is she never fell into the, the appeal of outrage. She wasn't the person like yelling and screaming, telling them they're wrong and you know that they are sexist she's showing them saying these laws while you may think you're helping women you're actually hurting them and kind of let me show them and because she is able to be she 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 understands where they're coming from Mm -hmm. she is able to make so much progress because you know of these six supreme court cases for gender equality she wins five of them and it's certainly in large part for her ability to teach people that these laws are actually hurting everyone if, if you... Uh,
1: yeah, when you put men and women on different uh, playing fields, when you, have, when you have different rules for men and women. And it's crazy the way that you talk about that. And that's something that... This is an, a lasting thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is one person who made it her mission, or who worked hard. She went through the highest... She went through, through the highest hurdles, went over them, worked her, her way into positions where she could make impacts, and then had a strategy about it, and then made specific impacts into the laws of the United States about something that she became passionate about, which was um, which was gender equality, and which was something that... She, she was so smart. She, um, she went to Sweden. Yep. Yeah. And she learned Swedish. And then co-wrote a book in Sweden. And in Sweden was was where she gained a lot of perspective about gender equality because in Sweden it was much more progressive than the United States at the time. Yeah, she saw a judge who was eight months pregnant. She
0: saw, and yeah, it had a, a large impact on her. And again, if she, like, you know she probably felt a lot of, Outrage going to Harvard, being asked why she should be in the place of a man going to Harvard, and they don't have, you know, female bathrooms in most of the buildings. You know, she must have been very angry and upset. But if she had let that outrage get the best of her and been uncivilized to people on the other side, she wouldn't have been able to win all these cases and make the actual progress that then change the world, where you have all these Supreme Court laws, which means all the laws, you know, all the state laws need to abide by these changes. and yeah,
1: these decisions.
0: Yeah, which ultimately led to so much more gender equality in the United States, as we've seen in terms of the law school numbers.
1: Yeah, and it's, and it's crazy because... <laughs> And, and this is the time and this is when we when we think about gender equality and the push towards gender equality in the United States and, and how high the stakes have been for women who've been fighting for equality yeah Ruth Bader Ginsburg in this case if she's at this dinner with the Harvard law professor and she says what's on her mind yeah she that could be it for her and she doesn't have the opportunity it's just very interesting to see this is a person who made so much impact and this is the way that they did it and this is how kind of amazing the achievement was at the time
0: yeah yeah she also was in terms of personality she just naturally was pretty reserved and whenever you listen to her speak it's always so methodical and like soothing (laughs) when she speaks like she must have been such a good teacher because it was it's just it's very soothing and it feels very logical um, which I guess is probably a good trait in a judge
1: (laughs) yeah there's people out there Maybe somebody who listens, if you had Ruth Bader Ginsburg as as a law professor, feel free to comment or um, because she was a law professor for something like 16 years or something like that where um, she taught at, first she taught at Rutgers and there were fewer at the time. So she started teaching at Rutgers in 1963. Okay, there might not be any that, that many law students that are listen- of hers that are listening to our podcast. <laughs> um, so she started, she started as a professor at Rutgers Law School in 1963. She was paid less at the time because she was a woman. She, at the time, there were fewer than 20 female law professors in the United States. Um, she taught there until 1972. She got tenure while she was there. And then she went to Columbia and she became the, the first woman to be a tenured professor at Columbia Law. Yeah. And she taught there until 1980. And then she spent a year as a fellow... Or during that time, she spent a year as a fellow at Stanford, Stanford Law. So,
0: Yeah. And during this time is when she is also arguing these cases in front of the Supreme
1: Court. Yeah. And she, coinciding with this, was when she co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. Yeah. Yeah. Where it was it was part of this group where they... Created this women's rights group where they went to, um, where they were focusing on um, gender discrimination cases specifically, and so that's how she worked on a lot of these cases. Which she, she as part of the ACLU, she she yeah um, was working as the general counsel for this group.
0: Yeah, where they you know they have a calculated plan to go towards gender equality. So in 1980, Jimmy Carter appoints her to the DC Circuit Appeals Court. Which is a very natural step to the Supreme Court justice. But in 1980, she gets appointed there. And um, apparently, her husband, Marty, who is this like gregarious, everyone loves him, life of a party type of guy, he like really pushed to get her appointed for the DC Circuit Appeals Court because, you know, Ruth is, she's pretty reserved, kind of uh, head down, does her work. Um, and so he kind of, really pushes for this to for her to get this position and so then they move to D.C. and earlier we saw you know they were kind of moving a little bit for Marty's career where when Marty wanted to be a tax lawyer in New York she goes to Columbia and now Marty understands the pivotal work she's doing for gender equality that they moved to Washington D.C. so she can take this very prestigious role And continue her work for gender equality. And during this time, this is when she meets Antonin Scalia. (laughs) Scalia. Scalia, yes. (laughs) Scalia.
1: That's okay. (laughs) Yeah, Antonin Scalia.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They have this kind of iconic friendship. Mm -hmm. Because politically, they are the opposites. And they both go on to be Supreme Court justices. Yep. Again, this stepping stone of being on the Circuit Appeals Court in Washington D.C., but yeah, absolute opposite ends of the spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, where he is very conservative, you know, very fundamentalist about the Constitution. Yep. But te- yet...
1: yeah, textualist.
0: Mm-hmm. But they have this budding relationship, and this started in the in the D.C. Circuit, where like on New Year's Eve they would. Sp- Spend the night together Ruth and Marty and then Scalia <laughs> and his wife and Marty Ruth's husband was a very good cook and he would cook the dinner and sometimes it would be the meat or like the boar that Scalia killed on his Christmas hunting trip um, and it's, it's just kind of it's nice because especially when they're in the Supreme Court Their jobs are literally to argue against each other.
1: (laughs) Well, a lot, yeah, a lot of times they, yeah, they just come from they have different kind of viewpoints a lot of times when it comes to the application of the Constitution, but they could look beyond that and were friends and could kind of understand each other's viewpoints, which was uh, which was very great.
0: Yeah, and kind of when I was watching either of them talk, they like you can see the appeal for both person where if you didn't know. This person's political affiliations, and you just happen to be at a dinner party and talking to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is this like nice, a like, complimentary person about everyone around her, or you're talking to Scalia, who is like this <laughs> jolly. And if, if if you're jolly, you're probably not thin. This jolly, <laughs> large fellow who just you know he has like a big smile. I can see that both of them have these type of personalities that are. You know, like the people you want to hang out with.
1: Yeah. Do you want to? Uh, you want to break off for a little segment here?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one more thing I want to mention.
1: Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. This is important. <laughs>
0: and then I'm excited for this segment. <laughs> but oh, they like even go on trips together. You know, a lot of times through their work, Scalia comments about seeing RBG parasailing in France. Wow. And in India, there's a famous picture where they're on an elephant <laughs> and Scalia's in the front and I think a lot of feminists are like oh why is a man in the front and then they joke for the weight distribution <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's a it's a good it's it's funny and, and nice to see people on opposite sides realizing that hey we're just
1: you know we're just trying to uh,
0: make things work but yeah okay
1: I didn't know that about the elephant
0: <laughs> that's <crazy>. great <laughs> yeah it's pretty funny so this segment, Unlikely Friendships, mm-hmm. do you want to do a draft?
1: And Ooh. I'll,
0: I'll give you the first pick.
1: I don't, so I don't know. I feel like there's so many opportunities for unlikely fr- friendships that mm-hmm. maybe we can just go back and forth. And then, yeah, because I don't know. Maybe we won't have that much overlap. But yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, so I'll, we'll see. Okay. You want to go first? Sure. I'm going to go with uh, Helen Keller and Mark Twain. Yep. Yeah, that's a good one. Which uh, caught me off guard. I guess um, when Helen Keller wrote her autobiography, Mark Twain wrote her a nice complimentary letter after that. (laughs) Imagine (laughs) getting a letter from Mark Twain.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think they randomly met when she was 14. They somehow got in the same circle. And then, yeah, that letter came years later. So definitely an unlikely friendship. Okay, this is the one that I think jumps to a lot of people's minds. Kim Jong un and Dennis Rodman. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, that's a good one. That's of, a good one.
0: Yeah, we have Kim Jong un, the a dictator, supreme rural, ruler of North Korea, you know, and all the awful stuff that goes on there. And then Dennis Rodman, this basketball player who, you know, drama always seems to follow.
1: Yeah, here's another one that probably comes right into people's minds John Travolta. And Pitbull, (laughs) (laughs) what? They're they're friends. It turns out they're friends. Pitbull taught John Travolta how to salsa dance. Wow, wow, that's hilarious. (laughs) Sorry, I took that one off your list, but yeah, yeah. I imagine John Travolta's pretty good at salsa dancing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Uh, he was in Footloose, wasn't he? I think so, right? Or like yes. grease <laughs> lightning, one of those. We're just gonna state that.
0: <laughs> okay, so this one, you know, I love my biblical references.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, So, Mary Magdalene and Jesus, and um, can I preface this? Would I? I feel like I've heard the name Mary Magdalene before, but I have yeah, no clue who that is. I'm about to explain.
0: So, okay. Mary Magdalene, she practiced the oldest human profession of prostitution. <laughs> <laughs> And at the time, so um, tell me how
1: she knew Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, and at the time, it looked, <laughs> it looked, it, it didn't look. A lot of people judged, you know, Jesus, who was this religious figure, for hanging out with Mary Magdalene. But yet, yeah, they had a very close friendship, according to the Bible. In terms of if something went on there, and they met <laughs> in her line of work. I don't. I don't know. I don't think history knows for sure exactly how they met. But that's not. That's not what the Bible says. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's great. That's one of these drafts. That's like the third time you have brought Jesus into it. And every time it just kills it. It's just,
0: just... too much fun.
1: <laughs> uh man. All right. Next. <laughs> Spongebob and Squidward.
0: Oh, yes! <laughs> Let's go! So, oh, I mean, completely
1: different personalities. <laughs> Spongebob, like, jolly, happy-go-lucky, singing all the time. Squidward, exact opposite, just wants to stay at home. And then eventually, uh, maybe against Squidward's will in a lot of ways, they become, <laughs> from, they become friends. I mean, also, uh, Squidward's a, a squid, and Spongebob's a sponge. <laughs> like, <laughs> could they be any more different? <laughs> I love that one. And it is just a, a
0: funny friendship. And I feel like a lot of people have those types of friendships where, you know, one of them's kind of. Yeah, completely annoying. different personalities, yeah.
1: but somehow it works. Yeah.
0: Okay. And this is the, f- the final one. Oh, actually, I got two I want to bring up. But. Oh, on... Keep going. Yeah, Keep pulling yeah. them off. Yeah. So this is kind of a genre. All the animal friendships that are unlikely. Like when you see a duck riding on a wolf's back or an elephant and a rat.
1: It's. <laughs> 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 I
0: don't know. I made, made right. that one up.
1: a yeah, Duck riding on a wolf's back. Did <laughs> Dude, you make that one up? <laughs>
0: well, anyways, this is about the genre. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a well known genre. I think they've had a Netflix documentary series about just completely different species, just kind of hanging out and enjoying each other's company.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, was it like Charlotte's Web? It was Ooh. like a spider. Friends with a pig.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Wow, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about.
1: Uh, see? Yeah, see, there you go. Um, Ulysses S. Grant and James Longstreet. Go historical here. Who's James Longstreet? He was a Civil War general for the Confederates. Okay, so we have a uh,
0: people on both sides of Civil War. They were friends during the Civil War.
1: Yeah, they were longtime friends. They um they went to West Point together. And then Longstreet ended up working under Robert E. Lee, but they they were friends, and uh, but they ended up being on opposite sides of the Civil War. Yeah, you hear a lot of stories like that where you know you have brothers even fighting on
0: opposite sides. Okay, so here's one that's maybe not that surprising. So Frank Sin- Sinatra and JFK. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason it's so interesting is some people say Frank Sinatra relayed communications. Between the Chicago Mafia and JFK, to the point where Frank Sinatra—I believe his daughter says this—and I believe there's some decent evidence. I didn't look into it, you know. If you're interested and you're a conspiracy theory guy, you can look into it. But it seems to be that JFK communicated with Frank Sinatra, who communicated with the Chicago Mafia about like rigging and or just trying to get support in the primary elections through Frank
1: Sinatra. Yeah. Wow that that does sound like. What is up with JFK and all the conspiracy theories? Just he's always nah, I don't know everything with JFK. It seems like there's a conspiracy. Yeah, theory. and I, I
0: think like there's gonna be some truth there. It's just I don't think anyone knows what the truth is. That's true. Like well, as public probably. knowledge.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just made a uh, <laughs> just made a murdered <laughs> gesture, slit throat gesture. Yeah, you don't want to. <laughs> Again, we're not uh, we're, we're not trying to say. Say that uh, these are necessarily true. <laughs> so, um, so I did not. That that was a good segment. This could be the the uh, the elusive back to back segment <laughs> this section here. Let's <laughs> do I, it. I feel like we're riding the high of the segments. So I was going to give you some fake some fake friendships to see if you could to test you. Mm-hmm. And you do not know what this is going in advance. But instead, I am going to give you. Some other fake things. <laughs> what we are going to play is Is this their real first name? Ooh, okay. Which is so Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm-hmm. was born Joan Ruth Bader. Mm-hmm. Nickname as a kid was Kiki. Just Kiki, yep. And so, because when she started going to school, um, there were a bunch of Jones at her school. So her mom just had her go by Ruth. Yeah, And so we're going to go through some names of celebrities, typical modern day celebrities. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you, is this their real first name or is that not their real first name? Okay. And uh, let's see how you do. You're always a winner, so there's no pass fail here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My kind of game.
1: So we'll start it off just to get used to the uh, get used to the process. Name number 1 Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: Um so legally she did change her name, but obviously she was born Joan Ruth
1: Bader. She I actually didn't know that. She legally changed her name to Ruth.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty confident.
1: Oh, well, you get double points on that. One. <laughs> Extra credit. <laughs> let's go. You get double points on that one. Okay. Our our next name, uh Elton John. I think I've heard that that's not his real name. It's twofold. Not his real name. His yep. his uh, given name is Reginald Kenneth Dwight. Yeah, <laughs> good choice in changing that name. Um. Uh, next, Jamie Fox.
0: Hmm. I believe it enough. I'm gonna say it's his real name.
1: Incorrect. He hmm. was. Um. His name is Eric Marlon Bishop, and he ch- he chose the name Jamie because. As a stand-up comedian, he thought it would be better for his comedy career if he had a gender-neutral name.
0: Interesting. Very interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Liam Neeson. Real name. Incorrect. Whew, man, <laughs> his his given name was William John Neeson.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: These yes, so far all false. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Derek Jeter. Real name. Correct. Nicholas Cage real name. So, you are correct, but this is kind of a trick question. <laughs> so, his real first name is Nicholas, but his real last name or his full name, given name is Nicholas Kim Coppola, which he changed to Cage.
0: Interesting. Do do we know why he changed it?
1: I did not look that far.
0: Yeah. I mean I mean I imagine a lot of these are just kind of like stage names and they didn't legally change it.
1: Mhm. Um Morgan Freeman Real name. Yep. John Mayer. Real name. Correct. Will Farrell. Real name. Incorrect. What? His first name is John. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> his first name is John. I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. You just see, like, Brad Pitt, his middle name is Brad. There's, okay, a, there's yeah. all sorts of people that take their middle yeah. name.
0: And it's interesting when you think if you're changing your name, is there something like cool, like Thrasher or something like out there. Yeah. But when you just change it to like Jim or James, it's kind of interesting that like it just, they like the way the name sounds, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I could see my like my middle name. My middle name's Benjamin. Mm-hmm. That's not a very exciting middle name. If my middle name was something cool, like yeah. Sven, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be, like I could go by that. But Benjamin. <laughs> Yeah, it's but it's a pretty typical name. It's not you're not really uh, yeah. exciting anyone by yeah. by no. taking that. I already forgot it.
0: <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> okay, and then so after 13 years on the D.C. Circuit, President Bill Clinton appoints her to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's in 1993. Yep, exactly, and. Originally, uh, you know, we'll talk about her time as a justice, but originally she was seen as pretty moderate. And, like, some people who were very much feminist thought she was a little too soft on the, with the Roe v. Wade decision because when Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about the Roe v. Wade decision, when it happened, she said legally they were taking too big of a stance where she said they took the most extreme abortion case in Texas and then applied it to the entire country and she felt like that was just legally too large of a step to take the extreme case yeah and again this is just her she's very methodical and kind of small incremental steps kind of build up the entire uh, justice system so in that sense she you know that was one of the examples where she's actually seen as pretty moderate at least early on in her tenure as a Supreme Court justice to the point when Bill Clinton was looking for a nomination, you know, some people were telling him that, you know, she's not even that popular amongst the females. But again, Marty was kind of her cheerleader campaigning for her to get this spot. And she obviously had an incredible resume. So Bill Clinton met her. And according to him, after 15 minutes of meeting her, he was like, this is
1: the woman for the job. Yeah, and her and Bill Clinton had a good relationship. She actually, for his second term, she swore him in at the inauguration.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so in 1999, she was sick with colon cancer, but yet didn't miss a day on the bench. She underwent radiation, Um, and this is when she started working out with a trainer, which is another thing she's very famous for is her... Weightlifting and training routine in the Supreme Court. They have a gym, and she has a trainer provided, and she's very famous uh, for her workouts. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And then in 2006, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female to be a Supreme Court justice, retires. Mm-hmm. And this is when we start to see her, in terms of political orientation, start to be more liberal. Some people say it coincides with now she's the only female uh, of the nine justices. A little time after this, she starts reading her dissents from the bench. So after the court rules, and you have your the side that, I guess, ruled in favor of the case and kind of the winning side, then you have your four or less people who are on the dissenting side. They write a dissent, mm-hmm. and she kind of read it from the bench, which was very novel at the time, where before it was just kind of written and documented, but she wanted to get her voice out, and she starts to read Reading these zinging dissents. Eventually, this is what this led to the nickname Notorious RBG. <laughs> Which is such an awesome nickname. <laughs> it's such a sweet name. In one way, like these dissents, it actually did lead to some legislation in the Ledbetter v. Goodyear Act, uh, or Ledbetter v. Goodyear was this case where uh, Ledbetter didn't win this case, and basically she found out long you know after a long time after that she was getting paid working for goodyear doing the same job she's getting paid less than her male co-workers but because she found out so late she couldn't do anything about it and basically this case was saying that she should be allowed to do it because she didn't find out about it until way after the fact if she had known at the time because you don't publicly know what your co-workers make mm-hmm. if she had known at the time she could have done taken action then and this the supreme court ruled against ledbetter this woman in this case but partially because of notorious's <laughs> dissent, the congress signed similar law into legislation
1: yeah. so in the in the vein of notorious rbg a little side segment here about the similarities and differences between rbg and big notorious mm-hmm, big mm-hmm. which is where her nickname comes from
0: yeah i mean both absolute. Gangsters in their respective fields. Mark
1: that one down in the <laughs> similarities. <laughs> Both born in Brooklyn. Yep. So that's that's a pretty clear similarity. Definitely. Pretty clear difference. Physical appearance.
0: Oh <laughs> 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 well, yeah, now that you say it. <laughs> yeah. Now that I think about it.
1: That one kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> uh, cause of death. Big difference. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. Notorious B.I.G. was murdered <laughs> in gun violence. He yep. was killed in a drive-by shooting. Mm-hmm. And RBG died of pancreatic cancer. So mm-hmm. at, an, at an old age, which is very different than Notorious B.I.G., who died at a young age at the hands of a gunman. Yeah, certainly, certainly different. What? Who the gunman was? We are not sure. Yeah. We time. think it
0: was JFK's henchman. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was Frank Sinatra. <laughs> on behalf of the mafia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, both of them showed promise at a young age.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly.
1: Both of them <laughs> didn't go by their given first name. Biggie's was Christopher.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so uh, but as we know, Ruth became her uh, legal first name. Mm-hmm. That is all I have. <laughs> the <similarities laughs> and yeah. They were, yeah, they were both uh both gangsters in their own right. Both yeah. uh
0: both in professions that very much dealt with words. You know, yes. and kind of like your success is how you can present these words. So yeah. yes.
1: Linguists. Two yeah. linguists.
0: Yeah. It's it's definitely a, a killer nickname and it was made by some NYU law student on a tumblr and it just it absolutely took off to the point where ruth herself had t-shirts with notorious rpg and would give them out to people and it's just it's a it's a meme it's a thing and then so in 2010 her husband marty died and they have like a a great relationship that has really kind of been documented um in movies and pop culture and in in the news cycle yeah so marty died and and he left her no and explaining how much he loved her and he enjoyed watching her scale to the top of the legal profession and that he was basically just going through so much pain that, you know, he wanted to come home and, and die. And so it was very emotional for her, but again, she uh, has such a good work ethic and that seemed to be how she kind of dealt with deaths. Like her mom died when, around when she graduated, you know, the next day she's in court and she's just, yeah, she has such a great work ethic and, and definitely a great relationship, her and her husband. A little after this, she gets very sick, as we know, and it becomes very political where when President Obama is about to leave the office, people want her to retire so that President Obama can be the one who appoints a judge. And, you know, it can be um, – make sure the judge is liberal and if, in case a more conservative president comes along, which happened – They would get to appoint a conservative judge, but she said, you know, I want to be a judge as long as I can do it full steam, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: which I I think is great because I think part of the role of a court justice is they're not supposed to really be too political or specifically affiliated with one side. Maybe they have these ideologies, but I don't think they should kind of abide by the party's rule. And instead, she's saying, you know, I'm going to do this as long as I can fulfill my job to the American people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she yeah, she kept going full force for for years after that. So
0: yeah, and then as you said, she she died ended up dying of pancreatic cancer, uh, September eighteenth of twenty twenty. Um, certainly a, a well lived life. Yeah,
1: yeah. she uh, she was eighty seven.
0: Yeah, yeah, I believe so.
1: When she passed, <laughs> still in the. I, l- I like to hope at 87 I'll be doing something as influential as being on the Supreme Court of the United <laughs> States, but something yeah. tells me I'll be sipping my ties <laughs> 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 or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. if I'm lucky.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're lucky, um, pretty crazy. Definitely uh, a very impactful life
1: yeah and a very influential person and she was someone that was great to read about and read about all the she had a very long life and then she was also very influential all throughout her life and she was very interesting all throughout her life. There were so many different stages of her career where she yep. um where she was fighting cases and then she was being a professor and she was working in foundations and working toward and working towards equality in all sorts of ways and then she was a district court judge and then she was a supreme court justice she had so many different stages of her career she touched so many different lives and she uh she was really
0: yeah and she was definitely known in her personal relationships with the people who did clerk onto her in uh scalia she was known to be very kind and she would send them letters you know when they got a new job which is always cool to see and also kind of funny that because she was older she never learned to use email she, you know, she always had people to do it for her. What? Yeah. She never did email. And then as her kids say, she probably didn't even know how to turn on the TV because you know she's just working all the time or going to operas.
1: It really makes you wonder what... So Ruth Bader Ginsburg never learned how to use email. So like, how does it work with the Supreme Court? Did they just not use email in general?
0: I think she probably had uh, an assistant who looked at the emails. I imagine a lot of things were just printed off. Um, and then, okay... So another little tidbit. Grandma Paz. she, she uses email. Does she, she? Yeah. She can even uh, what's d- your email address? <laughs> <laughs> um I guess I don't email enough. I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> you don't know.
1: Actually, uh <laughs> Grandma Grandma Slavo, she uses uh, email as well. Wow.
0: What about my grandma can and he, Facebook? Ooh, and Facebook. Are you okay. friends with her on Facebook? no i I will be
1: we might have to make this happen she is very um very very outgoing on facebook like she'll like if i i i don't think i've mentioned the podcast to her yet but she would be like number one follower she'd be like (laughs) commenting on itunes she's yeah she's very involved on facebook she like goes and She'll go and like my friends' photos and things like that, or she'll comment. She's, yeah, she's the she's like the great grandma who will like comment underneath and be like, "You look so cute in this photo." Yeah, she's great. nice, love it.
0: Yeah, we gotta. I guess we gotta bring the grandmas on the podcast at
1: some point. Maybe they host and then we're we're not even on it. Yeah, and they just meet each other for the first time. <laughs> that'd be that'd be interesting.
0: Yeah, and my my grandma she she uses Snapchat. She can't send snaps, but she can view them. Really? Yeah.
1: Does she, does she just choose not to send snaps?
0: No, she just doesn't know how. Oh, but you know she she can view them.
1: Nice. Yeah, exactly. But for someone, if the iPhone is introduced when you're literally seventy, yeah, yeah, how crazy yeah. is that? <laughs> when <laughs> we're when when we're seventy, knock on wood, yeah. they're going to be introducing all sorts of crazy stuff that <laughs> that we're just going to be like that is bullshit i'm not dealing with that push to our side yeah you deal with that yeah grab our my ties exactly so i mean any anytime somebody of an older generation embraces new technology i find it to be impressive because i mean like i don't even update my iphone as much as i should yeah yeah and and uh so what am i going to be doing in 50 years (laughs) yeah
0: yeah no it's so impressive when old people learn new technology but yeah uh <laughs> <on that note. laughs> no. Thank you all for listening.
1: Yeah, thank you very much and uh and hope everybody has a has a has a great has a great week.
0: Yeah, yeah. Goodbye everyone. Oh, I was gonna sign off for the notorious <laughs>
1: No no notorious. No, 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 notorious.